And now, Truth of Lies. Episode 3. Nobody, no idea. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to Truth of Lies. My name is Tony Horn. I'm a ghostwriter and podcaster in Lancashire, England, in the northeast of the country, in East Bolden, Julie Phillips. We are retracing our footsteps and indeed others too. We are heading back to the early noughties and the death of Julie's husband, Michael Phillips. To recap, he was in Sierra Leone. He had just returned to the UK. Holly had just been born. He had seen her on the one occasion. When everything sinks in, you can stop me there, Julie, because nothing sinks in, does it, straight away. It's You are in recoil, presumably for the entire period up to the funeral. You know, like you're up above and you're looking down on somebody else's life and you know what's happening to you, but it's not, if you know what I mean. It's it's weird. It's just not, it's not normal. You've probably heard people talk about out-of-body experiences. Um Sometimes they describe them for for medical reasons. If they've been under medication, you know, during an operation, and that and it's a life saving operation, you often hear of people describing how they felt they crossed that line. This isn't quite that territory, but it is a scenario where you are observing yourself, and you don't recognise yourself anymore because of the circumstances. And I suppose the the feeling that you have is not a unique feeling. It happens time and time again, and that is this surely can't be happening to me when you're having that sort of out-of-body experience. I look back now. I can look back now and see it from a different kind of view, but then I look back and I go back. I can go back to the day and everything that's happened. and. I'm not the same person. I'm definitely not the same person as I was before Michael was killed. Definitely not. Well, two questions there. The first one would be, can you elaborate on how you might see the 27th of January 2002 differently two decades on from in the moment? And then I suppose I probably would answer my own question, but it's fair to say that this moment in your life reacts multiple times over the rest of your life in the way that you deal with stress, time, emotion, guilt issues survival what do they call that survival guilt i mean you weren't there in the in the vehicle but you know what i mean people mm -hmm. that are meant to be part of a partnership and suddenly 
it's just one of you. This it casts a spell, doesn't it? It casts a spell on on everything else. Now I can talk about it. Back then, very early days, up until years later, I could talk about it openly about everything that happened. But then I would have like horrendous nightmares, like horrendous nightmares that I killed him. Just bizarre. I think obviously. it plays on your mind when you talk about it in depth. And then I would have really bad bad nightmares. You know that's... I'm going to be really harsh. You know that's nonsense. You didn't kill him. No, no, no. I know I didn't. I have really bad dreams where I would I would dream that I killed him in, in like, a different way. And I would also dream that he was alive. He was alive and I was trying to find him. And I knew he was alive, but getting to him was... And I had these dreams quite a lot where he was alive. I don't mean alive in Sierra Leone. I mean alive, maybe he's in the UK. I don't have the letters after my name to analyse that like a psychiatrist or a psychologist. But anyone with a heart or anyone who's experienced grief who's listening to that can work that out can't they it's it's very very simple and there's something which we'll probably all go to our graves not understanding and that is dream sequence mm-hmm. we've all had dreams that have involved people and situations that are very real to us in contexts that bear no resemblance to to anything i i i think i spent a lot of my life where i didn't really dream because i lived in broken sleep because i was getting up at half past four to work the radio now i'm dreaming a hell of a lot and maybe that's medication as well um i confess to my hand but i'm stunned when i wake up and i pick up the pieces from that dream the bits that do make sense and the bits that don't and everybody has that sensation when they wake up what they believe to be mid-dream. You know, they believe that they that waking has interrupted the, the mm-hmm. dream. But as someone who is clearly traumatized, can you explain, can you roll back and, and just explain the kind of emotions that you would feel when you would wake up and it's all been so vivid in the subconscious? I think back then I was very angry really hurt, angry, annoyed, confused. But I think on the other hand, I just had this tunnel vision. Like tunnel vision, nobody else mattered apart from me and Holly. I wasn't bothered who I hurt or what I had to do to find out the truth. And I know that probably sounds quite bad to some people, you know, it doesn't matter who I hurt, but I just had this tunnel vision where I just looked ahead. I didn't think about anything else for quite a long for quite a long time. I didn't really grieve. If hand on heart, I can probably count on one hand how many times I cried. And maybe that was frustration or anger. But I didn't I, I didn't really grieve. Well, a, a few things occur to me there. Uh, obviously, the the lack of grieving again. Let's enter 
the room of the psychiatrist or the psychologist, one of the first things that people in those roles often say, you know, you've got to have time to grieve or you haven't grieved properly. And that's why you might have subsequent trauma. The other point there about, and, you know, I'll just correct you because you don't really mean you didn't care who you hurt on the way to finding the truth. You you really mean um, you were going to do whatever it took. And I think there is nothing about that that is inappropriate because the alternative is, dare I say it, a truth of lies. And I think what happens when we look at your story, one thing that people should take from it is they should ask themselves, what's happening today that's being swept under the carpet? Or what other military deaths were we sold a certain narrative? But actually, I thought there was something strange at the time. And you think about any conflict. The Vietnam War is probably a good example. We don't know as much about it as the Americans, but there's a lot of people there who are unaccounted for. And unaccounted for has got to be one of the worst end scenarios, I think, that you, you can have. How long do you think before this anger eased and this constant dreaming? I'm going to guess... We're not talking weeks, months, but we're we're talking multiple years. Yeah. I'd probably say 10, 12, 14, yeah. I think, yeah, around about maybe 12, 14, yeah, that I started to feel normal. <laughs> As in, no more hassle. No more contact with the MOD, solicitors, barristers. My whole life, for the first nine years, that's what it was. I couldn't plan. Didn't really. I don't think I was ever really happy in all that time. If you've been lucky enough to live your life without ever having any involvement with solicitors other than for purchasing a house or perhaps the reading of somebody's will, you are lucky because litigation is draining. And one of the things that adds to grief, stress, trauma management in litigation is the amount of time that it takes to get before a court as you're going to hear in future episodes. It's very difficult to complete the day-to-day -day tasks of life when you're dealing with that. And of course, that dealing with that means the solicitor's just phoned, I've got to go and fish out a document, or it also means the solicitor hasn't phoned, and I don't know what's happening. And we'll we'll come to this, but the period of time, the multiple years before you were able to 
settle, if you like, with the Ministry of Defence, in a word, that's exhausting, isn't it? Yeah, that was my whole life for, for many years. Constant on the phone, receiving letters. It was just, like it was constant. It took over my life, literally. And this this is a really tough question. And I think you can only ask it 20 odd years on, but, and you might have to have an out of body experience and remove you from the narration of this story, but this was an accident. Okay. There are duty of care issues in it. Can you accept an accident? as an accident or are you unable to move past that point because of everything that you discovered in time and the duress you would have felt by the stubbornness of the ministry of defense to let's just put it politely be very slow with the truth still 21 years nearly 22 years an accident accidents happen and I know, and I know about the army and the MOD, obviously Armex Army, but everything that revolved around it, the lies, not telling us things, lack of equipment, that his, his company officer came to my house not long after the funeral and basically said, the truth is, Michael and James died through lack of funding. <laughs> And I, and I was just, I don't even know. I don't even know how I didn't even kick them out, kick him out the house because he was a nice guy, actually. Um, but no, I don't, I don't forgive. I don't, I don't forgive. And I don't, and I don't regret. I would do it again. As in litigate and make sure you see it through. Well, we will come to details like that at this point. The thing that occurs to me to ask is, did that person come to the house of their own accord? Yes. And that sometimes happens, doesn't it? People in delay feel a conscience. Let's just focus now on the period between the 27th of January 2002, Michael's death, and the funeral, which took place when? The 11th of Feb. One of the things that I think is a theme when you're dealing with stories like this is that certain dates uh, become ingrained in, in the memory. And if you're listening to this now, you probably have no idea what you were doing on the 11th of February 2002 or the 27th of January. 2002 but around you lives are taking place and well in this situation um being lost when we are past that first 48 hours we talked in episode one about the knock on the door what happens it happens to everybody that at some point the practicality of a funeral 
starts to kick in. And I'm sure that cycle, that process begins way too early for almost everybody, but it has to, it has to happen, doesn't it? You suddenly on autopilot have people around you arranging things how much time did you have for the news to sink in 48 hours before plans are being made and those plans of course let's not forget involve a body that is in another country i can't remember how long they were trying to get his body back no and it, him and james were going to fly back together i think it was the lads who were in the vehicle we're all going to fly back on the same flight. And James, as we mentioned in the previous episode, died as well. Yeah. You are really at the mercy of the Ministry of Defence here. I mean, they are totally in control. It's very, it must be very hard to know how to organise this from England and what, day is going to be appropriate did you have if it were involving the police you would be assigned a family liaison officer did is there such a thing in in military life to family's officer he'd never actually dealt with somebody who'd um died before in service wow wow so it was like you know i don't think people realize how big the military organisation is. They deal with everything. They dealt with everything. The flying back, the bodies, the funeral. And obviously well, flying them back, they were meant to fly to RAF Bryce Norton. Oxford, yeah. yeah, we drove down to the hotel. Me and my sister in one car, Michael's family in another. And we got to the hotel. And the family's officer went missing for hours and hours. And we just sat and waited and waited. And he came back and said there was a problem, a problem with a flight. And then it was going to be, sure, it was some other RAF base. And then it was going to be Gatwick. It literally changed. So I said, right, come on, well, we're going to Gatwick then, me and my sister. And oh, you're not allowed to go. It's not a military base, so you're not allowed to go. So, you know, when you see all these people, you know, when you see the, the the military coffins come off the plane at RAF, I think it's RAF Bryce Norton, it's the main one. It's Wooden Bassett in, near Swindon and mm -hmm. often into RAF Lynham in Wiltshire. Lynham. Um, uh, it was RAF yeah. Bryce Norton first, then it changed to RAF Lynham, then it went to Gatwick. So, we didn't get that military. You know, where the flight comes in and they bring the coffin off draped in the Union Jack and you have, obviously, the parade of soldiers saluting and we didn't have any of that because we weren't allowed to go to Gatwick. The first thing that struck me there, and obviously I can see, Julie, as we're talking, but you can probably pick it up in the tone. When we began this segment, you said people don't realize how big the, the military is it sounded to me that what you were actually saying was how powerful the military yeah. is well they are now just a few practicalities that i've just looked up whilst julie was explaining that 
And when would that be? So if the funeral is the 11th of February, when would that be roughly? How many days before? He was killed on the Sunday night, the 27th. It was the following Saturday, early February. I'll come back to my points in a second, but do you have, do you have any knowledge of what <laughs> was going on in Sierra Leone at that point? Because you described how Michael or Michael's body was taken to a police station in a previous episode. I think one thing that would make people shudder and feel the maximum amount of compassion is just the thought that a soldier would just be, I'll put it bluntly, lying around. And do you know what happened in the time before he came back? Do you have any understanding of that? He was taken to Nyanamsal Hospital. They didn't do a post-mortem or anything there. When he came back to the UK, obviously, apparently, he flew into Gatwick, but I'm not 100% sure till this day whether he did. They opened up RAF Northolt, where Lady Diana was brought into. Apparently, that was the last time that airport was opened properly, was for Lady Diana's body. So that's where I met Mike. Well, I'm saying... <laughs> I know people's going to probably think this is weird, but it, the hearse came out of the hangar at REF Northolt. We were in a building. It pulled up in front and we came out and they opened the back and it was just a coffin with a Union Jack. Still to this day, I did question it many times. Was Michael in that coffin? So let me break this down into... Some Googleable data to Bryce Norton, the mooted first location. Obviously, as we're recording this, I can see a live traffic time that might not be representative, but that's under four hours, just under four hours. What about a flight time from Freetown in Sierra Leone to London? And the places that Julie mentioned there, Bryce Norton's in Oxfordshire, RAF Northolt is Northamptonshire, I think, RAF Lynham is Wiltshire, but all of these places are essentially within an hour and a half of central London, but flying time minutes. Gatwick, of course, is, is Sussex and not so central. The flight time from Freetown to London, so most of those locations, Eight hours, 51 minutes, Google tells me. Let's just roll back. Now, Julie said that the family, the family's officer went missing. And I think you said he had tried to justify that there was something wrong with the flight. Eight hours, 51 minutes, Freetown to the UK. Three hours, 45 to... Bryce Norton. Well, anyone else doing the maths here? So, a truth of lies begins in this particular context. And Julie and I have been speaking for the best part of a decade. And I can't recall everything that we've said. I recall certain things. 
One of the early comments that you'd said to me, maybe in 2016, was, and I hope I represent this fairly, they even lied about where Michael's body was coming back to. Let's just rule one thing out. It's February 2002. You were able to drive to Oxfordshire. I take it the weather was all right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So perhaps that family's officer is a bit rubbish at their job, or perhaps they told you what they believe to be correct. But with some element of flexibility, particularly with RAF flights, generally you put in a flight plan when you're going to leave. And if we ever spoke to the pilot of that plane, I would probably lay money on the fact that they knew that they weren't coming to Bryce Norton. Yeah. I reckon the family's officer didn't know that. I'm surprised at the mention of Gatwick. I think anybody listening would probably think that doesn't sound right. doesn't sound right to go into one of the busiest airports in the world. And also, you would think it would be coming to an RAF base. And if, as we are giving you the whiff of, cover-up is at play, you really would go somewhere under the radar other than Gatwick. It feels like someone just made that up on the spot. And then you said RAF Northolt, where the last, what did you say, the last? I think the last time it was open as an airport and RAF Northolt was, was when Diana, Diana, yeah. Which would be August 1997. This is five years later. So, yes or no, did was that the final destination as you understand it? Did did a plane land at RAF Northolt? No. It landed no. at Gatwick and they were drove up from Gatwick to RAF Northolt, apparently. Okay, so we could be shown to be inaccurate here, but what you're saying sort of implies that RAF Northolt was well under the radar and not a regular port of call for incoming air traffic no which begs the question well why the hell was it going there and we come to a scenario that's completely the opposite of gatwick one of the busiest airports you know certainly in europe and then the place that we understand isn't really doing much air business these days it's it's madness so when you unpick stuff years later, it's the little detail that trips people up. Why this need to sow this narrative to Julie and Michael's family? So it's probably the weekend after Michael is killed and you've gone to a hotel in Oxfordshire. Where do you head to next based on the Gatwick Northolt rumour? Where do you go? So we got in the car and we drove to REF Northolt. We sat in a building and there was these great big hangers and the hearse came out of the hangar with a coffin in the back. And obviously they open the hearse and you go out and kind of, I think it's pay your respect. But then the thing that sticks in my mind is we left there. We got onto the motorway to go back to Blackpool. And as we were driving up the motorway, there's the two hearses with the two coffins in each hearse with the Union Jacks draped over. And I, 
And I was watching them as we were driving past and I said, I thought they were going to somewhere for a post-mortem. But they were driving past us on the motorway. Well, we were driving past them on the motorway. And I said to Fam, and he went, yeah, 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 that's where they're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went, all oh, right. And I think it had been a stressful day. Uh, we'd been up early. We'd been traveling. We'd been waiting. I didn't take much notice of it until we got back home. That was the Saturday, I think. And on the Monday, nobody knew where Michael's body was. It had gone missing. And I'm sat here laughing about it. Not, I'm not laughing about it, but nobody could find him. Nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew where they took him. So I think for about four hours on the Monday morning, I was ringing around every hospital, every mortuary in Oxford. I mean, everywhere. And we found him. He was in Preston. He was at Preston Mortuary. She wouldn't speak to me until she had permission from the family's officer, which I absolutely, I, w I, I went mental. I went crazy. She being the... This was the lady who was looking after him, who worked in the mortuary. I can't remember her name. I can't remember, but I know I did speak to her several times. She said, I need authority from the army. Did she get it? So I put him on like that. I just handed him the phone. I was like... Who's him? Who's him? Family's officer. Okay. Because he was at my house. Like, we don't know where Michael is. We can't find him. And I was like, well, you can imagine me. Actually, honestly, I turned into an absolute psycho. Truth of lies. Crazy woman. I mean, crazy. I did all the phone calls. I was ringing round. He just sat there with his head in his hands. That's like, so we eventually found him. And he'd been there all weekend and I could have gone to see him. But the military police who took him there, when we were driving past him on the motorway, they didn't go to Oxford. They went to Preston. And when they arrived, when he, well, when, when Michael arrived there, the lady, they, they said, oh, does the family, does the family know? Are they aware? Because obviously, you know, to go and view. And they just said, no, it needs to be kept under lock and key and nobody's allowed to know. It's extraordinary for me to listen to this because I know enough about the story to be able to do this show with you. But I don't know all the little details, which I hope enables me to ask the questions that, other people would be thinking and again you know if anybody military police legal is listening to this and thinks that i might be a bit naive here i can assure you i'm not but when you said the military police i thought well that's i just assumed that it would be a driver of a hearse who drives hearses regularly. But of course, the phrase the military police and their presence automatically, unless that's standard 100% of the time, which maybe it is, but that just flags up to me a wall in front of you and some sort of concealment. And as you've just outlined, concealment is at play. Why could you not find out that very simple question, or the answer to it, where is Michael this weekend? Why could you not find that out? It's just staggering. Um, I think 
Anybody listening to the last few minutes that you've described so brilliantly, rewinding a couple of things. So when you said you're in the hangar and you see a coffin, presumably James's coffin is there too. Well, I didn't see. I didn't okay. see James's. He must have still been in the hangar, in the, in the hearse. One thing I wrote down before we began recording is, did you see Michael's body before the funeral? Yeah. But you didn't see it before Preston. I saw it. He went to Preston on the Saturday, but I didn't see him until, I don't know whether it was the, mon I think it was the Monday evening, because when I finally find out, found out where he was, and obviously the family's officer had to give consent, I asked if he was viewable. She said, excuse me. I said, well, I have. I've been in the army for five years. I've worked in military hospitals. I'm asking if he's viewable. You know, Is that he's the been word involved. That people would use. Yeah, yeah, the wood, the wood, because obviously he was involved in a car, you know, road, well, not car accident, a road traffic accident, a Wimmick. I didn't know the injuries, you know, like the post mortem hadn't been done by then. I think it'd been done on the Monday, but I hadn't, I hadn't had a report or nobody told oh. us. So I asked if. I asked if he That's was viewable. That's key, isn't it? I mean, forget the post-mortem. Nobody had said to you, look, Michael's in a pretty, obviously dead, but Michael's body's in a pretty bad way. No one had said that to you. You didn't know, did you? You didn't know if, like, let's put it really harshly, if a leg was shattered or a skull was fractured. Nobody gave you any details. No. So. And there's two things going on there. There's there's the administration of a post-mortem, but there's also the communicating with the the family, which it's always a difficult act at a, a scene of a crime when you've got to you think of all the big ones, 9-11, 7-7, you've got to preserve evidence as quickly as you've got to save people. And in this case, there's no saving for Michael, but the secondary of that is looking after after family so you knew nothing and it's been a week and when you asked is michael's body viewable the person that you spoke to doesn't sound experienced enough to deal with that question i mean she was lovely she she told me the truth when i got there about obviously as she asked if the family were aware that he was here they told her that nobody was allowed to know basically kept under lock and key until obviously after the post-mortem. And then when she I said, is he viewable? And she said, I'm going to be honest. He wasn't in a good state when he came, when he arrived. But we've cleaned him up and he, he, he's, he looks okay and you can come and see him. So this is a real tough question. I hope it's not tasteless, but was it important for you to see Michael in the condition in which he perished or a condition in which you would hold your final memory of him and it would be slightly more respectable to all the memories that you had? I needed to see him because he didn't die in the UK. I hadn't seen him for a while. I hadn't spoke to him for about 10 days before he was killed and I needed to see. I, I, I just needed to see. And I wasn't frightened. I wasn't it wasn't anything like that. And when we got there, my friend Sarah came with me. I mean, bearing in mind, she was heavily pregnant. And when we went into this room, the, the, it, there was like a room at the back where he was. And 
she went, are you sure such, Are you sure you want to see? And I said, yeah. And the, and the family's also went, oh, shall I go in first? Shall I go in first and, and make sure he's all right? Make sure he's okay to look like viewable. So he went in first and then came out and said, yeah, he, he, he's, he looks okay. Not that I needed him to do that, do you know what I mean? But that's what happened. I come back to one thing and... You know, one of the techniques of police interviews is that you ask the same question several times in multiple interviews. You're looking for consistency. It's often said people can remember their lies about the big stuff. No, I was nowhere near the bank the day I robbed it. But they can't remember a colour of something, etc., etc. The incidental detail. And often... In police circumstances, CCTV evidence is in the officer's back pocket waiting to expose all the lies. Every time we have recorded an episode, Julie, I would describe this as there's a whiff of unnecessary cover-up. I go back to my earlier question, which is that if there was an accident on the road and there's no ambush, there's no rebel gangs coming back for the weapons that they've exchanged there's no local spark when everyone thinks there's peace on the ground it's an accident knowing as i do what you've been through there might be some level of acceptance that there's an accident but from the off it's almost like a double paranoia they've wrapped themselves up in secrecy you just said that the woman that you dealt with had said something along the lines of you're not to know nobody's to know where the body is mm -hmm. there's an accident there's an accident you know it's not like it's an sas deniable operation that is going to end up in court and in government inquiries for years to come with the greatest of respect the intensity with which the lies begin from an early point smells a magnitude of deceit going back to that morning when he was when he was missing and nobody knew where he was so i kicked off and i stormed over to camp i went straight to the company of commanding officer's door bear in mind this man was the commanding officer of the regiment and had never come to see me after michael died he wrote me a letter a handwritten letter, and the family's officer handed to, to, to me. If we were to put it through the test of time now and get it out, and maybe we will, mm -hmm. do, you, do you think it would stand the test of time? Do you think you'd look at it and, dare I say it, laugh? Yeah. Just said, like, we're here for you now and ever, you know. He said, the family's officer said his wife wanted to come and visit. And I said, why would his wife want to come to visit? I don't know his wife. He's Michael's big boss. He should have come to my house. So why didn't he come? Why didn't he come to my house? Yes, okay, Julie's this crazy woman. You know, Mrs. Phillips is this crazy woman. And so I went over to camp and I kicked off and I kicked his door. I booted it. He was on the phone and he just looked at us. And I just stood there and looked and, and he went, can I help? Went, I think you need to put that phone down right now. And then I think he realised who I was. And he went, oh, I, 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 are you okay? I went, no, I'm not. They can't find Michael's body. 
I mean, I bet people's listening to this thinking they can't find Michael's body, but we couldn't find it. Nobody knew. You couldn't so, find it, but somebody knew. Yeah, and obviously... The driver knew, the, uh -huh. the clerk knew that checked the body in. The person in the, the mortuary knew, mm -hmm. and a superior who gave the order for that sequence of events knew. He was like, and I, I was shouting, you better sort it, you better find him. And I, I thought, you deserve, you deserve me going over and kicking off like that because you haven't even had the decency to come and see me. Like, I just, and it was me who rang everywhere and found him. It wasn't the military. It wasn't the family's officer. It wasn't the commanding officer. It was me. What question did you ask? How did you introduce yourself when you ring and say, I'm trying to find my husband? Well, I probably sounded like a lunatic. Probably sounded like a nutter. I'm really sorry, but uh, I'm looking for my husband. I'm, I'm looking for my dead husband. And we don't know where he is. And then obviously I must have said, we've seen him go up the motorway. We thought he was going to Oxford and we can't find him. Nobody know where, knows where his body is. And they must have thought... I'm going to guess when you got lucky, before it was confirmed to you, there was probably a huge pause. First of all, she mm. said, I need to speak to somebody in authority from the army. Well, then you know, don't you? You know. We could only guess what kind of brief that individual was was given. She suddenly, and this is the thing about tragedy and trauma, never underestimate how many people suddenly become part of the circle of grief the circle always expands and that can be in the days that follow or in the years that follow and dare i say it and we'll talk about holly at some point inevitably she will will have questions and will have had questions she's a young lady now that can impact on many major decisions you make in life so the circle of trauma incorporates those directly connected to it and bystanders too that lady happened to pick up the phone to your call maybe what the 10th 15th 20th call you'd made that day you're not the first person to go in there and see michael you go in there a question in multi-parts as ever your physical reaction to seeing him and then your emotional well-being given that you know, your comments earlier, you needed to see him. You hadn't seen him for a bit. You, When you said that, you it was as though was, he was still alive and you'd just, he'd been on a tour. He looked okay, as in maybe, maybe it was because I'd seen dead bodies before. Maybe it was because I was used to it. So it wasn't a shock. We're talking about the person that's closest to you, but you have resorted to sort of professional type there, you know, in that you have an understanding of what it is there's a precondition so the the supplementary question would be you've seen dead bodies before but this isn't just any dead body no dot, dot, dot. yeah but i will admit that i checked all of his body i thought is there a missing leg is there a missing arm because bearing in mind they hadn't told me anything about his injuries or so i checked and you I found no, nothing, nothing that. Nothing untoward. I know he had a big injury to the back of his head, and obviously there was. You could see where they'd done the post mortem, 
he was clothed. I think he was wrapped in something and then he had this shroud thing over on him. So I couldn't really kind of like have a proper, proper look. Were you looking for clues or looking for reassurance? I think I was just looking to see, like, make sure both legs were there, feet, hands, arms, just just to make sure, because they hadn't really told me anything. Are you in control of your emotions? Yeah, I think I was, because, like, I had to be strong. I was fighting. I'd been on the phone all day trying to find out where he was, and I couldn't lose it. I couldn't show... What you might perceive... Or what yeah. other people might perceive as a weakness. Yeah. Holly's a baby yeah. and she's eight weeks old. And where is Holly? At my parents. My parents came down, my mum stayed, and then my mum took Holly back up to hers and came back down for the funeral. And then I think took her back up home. My mum took about six months off work. And this is one of those comments that in the moment, 2002, you'd probably reasonably argue there's no need. We don't need to do that. As we record in 2023, is there a small, small part of you which might wish that you could say to Holly now, well, look, when your dad was lying there, I did actually take you to see him? Tough question. No, I didn't take her. And I wouldn't. No, she didn't go to the funeral neither. That's such a an awkward thing to weigh up because in the moment a baby who is two and a half months old <laughs> close to three shouldn't be in those circumstances but when you roll forward the clock and it's 20 years later it could be tempting to be emotional and say yeah do you know what i wish i'd repaid that look from michael to holly that we talked about in the last episode and i wish holly could have seen her dad even in those circumstances <sighs> When Holly listens to these podcasts, Holly doesn't know all the details, the nitty gritty stuff. She 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 doesn't she doesn't know. It's not that I've hid it from her. It's just because she hasn't asked. And I think there's a time and a place, and I don't really want to upset her. Maybe it's not that though, Julie, you know, we, I can see in my own life and I can see in my parents and I can see in my friends, there are some conversations that we think, well, we're going to have that conversation. Yeah. And before we know it, time's just rolled on. It's not necessarily about protecting and it's not necessarily about avoiding. It's about life getting in the way. How long are you in there? Quite a while. I know I sat and I sang to him. Weirdly. What did you say? Titanic. <laughs> that was always playing a Michael's song and wow. I had it played at his funeral. I mean I'm I'm a really crap singer, to be honest, you know what I mean? But I think I was trying to act as normal as possible. It's not a normal scenario, is it? You go into a mortuary and you, you you're sitting there and your husband's there and he's dead. He's not gonna talk back. He's not you know, and I'm prodding him, I'm poking him, and I'm trying to look at see what injuries he's got, and it's it's not normal. What is that like for anyone who's never experienced it? Are you looking at this person who you knew was so alive, and you're, you know, there's is there a massive denial that, however much you prod and poke, come on, I can't accept this. This there must be something. There must be. I don't, I. I I don't know, as I said, I'm not... I just not, don't I'm think I was in... I don't know. I just don't think I was all there. 
not all there. I was up above looking down and I don't know, just I had this tunnel vision. There was no emotion. There was no, I don't know. I think well, I had so much to deal with, so much to deal with and I had loads to do and I, I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating and it was it was crazy. You know, though, you said something really interesting. I've never even considered this before. You said there was no emotion. As crazy a comparison as this might be, when people don't vote at elections, other people will say, well, you've lost your right to have a say. You didn't bother to vote. I've always argued that not voting, and you don't have that option, I think, on the ballot paper, none of the above, but not voting is actually a massive statement. And one of the common trends of elections in this country, and there are certain countries, I believe, like Australia, I think we it's the law where you have to vote. But one of the one of the ongoing issues with elections is turnout. So most people don't vote. You'll see a tabloid newspaper throw up back in the day when TV viewing figures were high. More people watched blah, blah, blah than voted. Now, because you don't do something, it doesn't imply that there isn't emotion, sentiment, and thought. And you've just said there that you didn't have emotion. But actually, no emotion is an emotion. That glazed look, that transfixed way of being, that trauma is an emotion. It's delayed, postponed emotion because you haven't come to terms with anything. And I think that that point needs to be made. And people that have grieved that are listening to this, will, I hope, will go, yeah, that is spot on. I'm not saying you're putting yourself down there or doing yourself a disservice, but I think I, I, I think I can see it a bit clearer that no emotion is a massive emotion. I think, yeah, and I think with military death, it's not as... I'm not saying any death is any less, or but with a military death, I don't think people realise what comes along with it. You have the military, they take over, you're living on an army quarter, so you see soldiers and families and children every day while you're grieving it's weird well i think and obviously at times of war this is escalated but we referred in the first episode to that knock at the door which is an image associated with i think things like the second world war and came around with much regularity less so today but I've not lived a military life, but I can understand from your comment there and those li listening who have lived a military life, you walking across camp. I'm not saying curtain twitches. I, no one needs to curtain twitch. Curtain twitching implies a bit of nosiness and nastiness, but the eyes upon you from anybody in camp there must be an overriding emotion that could have been us. And that is a collective bond, which I think exists 
without fatalities and with fatalities there's always that risk and i think it's probably that mentality that that persuades some people to come forward and share the stuff with you out of a guilt complex but you must know that look mustn't you as you walk across camp because you're like living in a fishbowl the singing to michael's very interesting and i think you began that part of this by possibly saying people might think i'm nuts but i've had a few moments to reflect and i can see that actually you might take some peace from that it's a moment that's unique to you it's a song that is both unique to you and unique to millions of people and couples around the world if that's not a paradox but did you the whole experience whether it be celine dion and your no doubt improvement on her classic song did you did you take some peace when you left that room amidst all the contradictions and the truths of lies that were outside of that room yeah because i'd seen him i think you know when he pulled up in the hearse with the coffin i didn't know he was in there didn't believe because i'd actually physically seen him that i wouldn't say i was relieved i wouldn't say it was but i knew where he was and i knew that they were going to look after him and she promised me that you know and i was in touch with this lady over the the next few days and she said he's here we you know we've got him he's safe we're going to look after him and and i knew he was there if you could turn back time i mean there are many moments and i don't suppose for a second that you can open the lid of the coffin when the hearse emerges from the hangar i wish i'd made them exactly yeah yeah i do and i think if people are smart and they reflect on this i make no apologies but one thing that there's an undercurrent here to everything that you've said and that is that this funeral i'll just hold that thought because i want to say that this episode i had intended to be about the funeral and we haven't even got there yet but i've been so gripped by julie's powerful emotive narration i'm sure you'll agree brilliantly told that we are still in the period between michael's death and the funeral so my point is this it feels not that this is the funeral corporal michael phillips and his wife julie phillips it feels like this is a ministry of defense funeral their fingerprints are all over it they're organization and administration hand in hand with that and this is a point that non-military people which is most of us will probably struggle with it feels like you've lost the right to determine how you bury a loved one and you shouldn't be fighting the system at this point funerals and deaths can come with politics especially when you get to the will but this feels like this is not your inverted commas funeral this is not michael's funeral this is the minister of defense is dotting the i's and crossing the t's yeah but that's what happens if you want a military funeral is there an option to not have a military funeral Um, yes i think well hmm, i think so but his family were up here my family were up here so how would have that been organized i've just lost michael holly's eight weeks old i'm on camp didn't really have strength to kind of organize a funeral and the do's and don't bearing in mind i've never organized a funeral 
I've never done it before. So, so yes, it was a big military funeral, the takeover. You can understand as well in the moment that careers define us, and that's wrong because personal lives should define us. You'll see today things on Facebook along the lines of when you die or leave your job, you'll be replaced. Nobody on their deathbed actually said, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. But we all make that mistake. And careers do define us. Um, I've been very fortunate in the work, in inverted commas, that has made me my living since 1989 is something that other people would perceive as fun and not work. And I am lucky in that respect. It does also pose the question, when you do your hobby for a living, as I have done with radio and writing, how do you then unwind? But careers do define us, particularly, I think, in the military. And there is probably a sense that in the moment you think, hey, this guy's a hero. Let the world see it. And that's very, very understandable. But I suppose in that moment where you make that deal, then you hand over control to the Ministry of Defence and it becomes their funeral. And as we explained in a previous episode, and we'll look at next time, the guest list is incomplete and there are still a million questions before Michael is laid to rest. Next time on Truth of Lies. Coroner had gone away, hadn't signed papers to release Michael's body for the funeral undertakers. All the plans and preparation in place for the funeral that was meant to go ahead had to be cancelled. To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com. Truth of Lies is a horny media and publishing production. 